Hey, thank you for having me here. And um, Kevin always rolls the dice uh, with me. So we'll see how this goes. Uh, I'd like to, I'd like to say something before I get into what, uh, I want to share this morning. I'm going to be extending the series that we've been walking through one minute after you die. And I'm going to be speaking on the glory of heaven. But before I do, I have a confession to make. Now, don't pull back. Stay, stay with me. Because sometimes when the, Speaker says, I have a confession to make. It's going to be this really dark thing. I hope it's not. Um, I, I find this topic difficult. Um, but I find it difficult for different reasons than you might think. As um, a lot of you know, because I've kind of been around Greenbelt Baptist since about 2003, a lot of you know that I've been in and around the church for a long time. My dad is a pastor. I've worked in churches for quite some time now. And my opinion is that sometimes we become so afterlife focused that we become neglectful of the here and now. Our focus on the promise of heaven makes us terrible stewards of the here and now. Our intense focus on what happens after we die makes us inattentive to what is happening here and now. Our focus on the promise of heaven makes us miss what is here. An area, for example, that is of particular interest to me at this stage of my life is the area of racial reconciliation. Now, just saying those words makes some of us clench up, doesn't it? Why is this? My sense is that there's not much appetite, much appetite in the church for discussions around racial reconciliation. My sense is that while we like to spend hours and hours in theological, theoretical pursuits, there is not much appetite for the hard work that goes into making the message of Jesus get legs and walk around on this world. My sense is that there is a reluctance to walk into the treacherous waters of social justice issues. I'm not saying they need to be the focus of what we do. However, what I can say for sure is that the deeper I leaned into the message of Jesus, I was not just activated about the hope of heaven, but I was also compelled to come to the table and have difficult conversations about issues that are affecting people right now. So, I struggle with this topic because I don't want us to miss the fact that people do not need to die to live in hell. There are people who are walking through their own personal hell right now. They face abuse, poverty, disease, hunger, war, slavery, addiction, There are people in Yemen, in Syria, in Central African Republic, in Sudan, in Haiti, in Honduras, in Venezuela, even right here in Canada, people facing their own personal hell. They don't need an afterlife to school them in the desperation and despair that comes from a lifetime of misery. No. 
I do not have difficulty with this topic because I struggle with the theology of it. I have difficulty with this topic because I am concerned that the church can become so consumed with conversations about the heaven that is to come and completely miss the heaven that I'm persuaded the Holy Spirit would like to create through us as we courageously become his agents in a world that is broken. I struggle with this topic because I don't want us to miss the fact that we do not have to wait for heaven as some distant promise, but we can live heaven right here on earth right now if we allow the joy and love of Christ to explode into every part of who we are. So, here I am. That's the end of my confession. I'd like to talk to you about the glory of heaven after you die. But I hold this theology in tension. I don't want us to be so future-focused that we forget that God, every single day, is calling us to be active agents in a world that desperately needs us. Are we good? You haven't pulled back? Okay. So let's get into it. Here's something that I've come to learn around the whole heaven conversation. Not that. Not that. <laughs> Let me restart this program. Because, here we go. What you believe about eternity determines how you live today. It's incredible to see how people build their lives based around what they believe will happen in their futures. You see, most people think that they're going to live long enough to have a fulfilling, a fulfilling career and retire at some point. Most people think that they're going to have kids, maybe grandkids, live long enough to enjoy the fruits of their hard work. And so we've structured our world around this narrative, the way that we've structured public services, the way we spend and we save money, the way we invest the property that we buy. All of these things tell an underlying story about what we think of our future. And I found that the same thing goes for what you think about when you die. Whatever you think about your afterlife has an effect on the way that you live your present life. If you think that life ends after you die and that's the end of it, it has a bearing on how you live. It has a bearing on how you treat other people. It has a bearing on how you treat creation. It has a bearing on the people or the things that you choose to trust your life with. If, on the other hand, you believe that there is a creator with whom you will have to stand account when you live this life, it has a bearing on how you live in the now. It has an effect on what you believe in. It affects the way you move around on this earth. And you see, the Bible is not ambiguous about what happens in the afterlife. And the reason why we reference the Bible in this moment is because as followers of Christ in the church worldwide, we have a consensus about one thing, that the Bible 
is an authority, is the authority that we follow. Okay? And so when we come to these moments, we subscribe to the authority of the Bible, these 66 books that were compiled over thousands of years and written by lots of people somehow are revelatory about the true nature of God and about this thing that we believe in. And so this Bible, this collection of books, is actually unanimous about the fact that there is an afterlife. Over and over again, for example, you see Jesus talking about the fact that there is more to life than the here and now. And the writers of the Bible reinforce this as they speak about messages of heaven, or as they quote Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, No eye has seen. I was afraid that a video of Steve would show up there. <laughs> it says, No eye has seen and no ear has imagined, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In John, John is quoting Jesus. Jesus is saying, Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And then Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How about in the revelation of John? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. This, uh, the, the revelation of John is, uh, is, is, is mostly this, this transcendent thing that John is passing through. And John is struggling to describe something that the language that he has at the time fails to fully describe. Do you see it? What, what does that look like? I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Do you see that? That is someone struggling to describe what he's seeing, what he's experiencing. This is something beyond what his vocabulary can describe. But let's, let's, let's keep going. I saw the holy city and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then if you go forward to verse 7, it says, Those who were victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of all the passages in the Bible that attempt to describe heaven or that talk about it. But they paint an unambiguous picture of an understanding that life here and now is not the beginning and the end of it. 
The Bible is constantly trying to show us that there is more than what we see and what we live in right now. And that we are part of a larger story that continues even when our bodies of flesh and blood cease to exist. You see, because God created us, and because he created us in his image, he gave us two of his unique attributes. He gave us the attribute of free will. God has free will, and he gave it to us. Another attribute that God gave us of himself is that we are eternal. God is eternal, and we too are eternal. And in our free will and in our eternal nature, we reflect part of who God is back to him. We're not flesh and bone. We're not just subservient robots. We're also soul and spirit. Our our 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or if we're lucky, 80 or 90 years are only a part of the eternal life that our spirits and souls get to live. And in Jesus, God gives us a path towards him or away from him. And we get to choose not, how, not just how we will live in this life, but also how we will live in the hereafter. United with God or rejecting him and constantly choosing separation from him. And so if we understand that we are eternal, and if we believe that our choices get to affect our eternity, you come to this realization, what you believe about eternity will determine how you live today. Now when we mention eternity or heaven, The truth of the matter is that sometimes we're ambivalent about it because we have misconceptions about what it will be. The first misconception I've heard my whole life is that heaven will be boring. It'll be boring. When I was a teenager, people used to say this to me all the time. They'd say, all the fun people are in hell. Why would I want to go to heaven? And the more I came to understand what heaven really was, I started to realize how misguided my hecklers were. If you say heaven is boring, by extension, you're saying that God is boring. But what you miss is that every single thing you enjoy, every single thing you enjoy, was created by God. Every time you laugh so hard that it makes you cry, (laughs) every sunset that is so beautiful that it just takes your breath away every every food that just melts in your mouth and starts to create pleasure noises Mm. everything and everyone that makes you feel like your heart might just burst with love everything you enjoy was created by God God's capacity for a good laugh. <laughs> I, when I, I used to take people on short-term missions with me to Uganda, and one of the things that I used to do was take them on a game drive to one of the uh, national reserves. And there are so many cool animals. But you have to think, the deity, the being, the whatever that caused a giraffe to exist must have been dying with laughter when he or she or it made it. 
<laughs> when God made a giraffe, I think he laughed. I think he lost it. It's, it's just, it's such a weird animal, isn't it? Or an elephant. This huge, huge creature with this strangest nose, hand, mouth thing. It's hilarious. I find it hilarious. I was going to tell you to look at your neighbor's nose. You might find fun in that. I I think God has a huge capacity for laugh, for laughter, but also for life-altering joy. If we can experience all these things on this planet, and if we can just sit in it and really enjoy it, and this earth can bring us so much peace and pleasure, how much more do you think heaven is, how much cooler do you think heaven is going to be? Heaven is boring. God is boring. (laughs) Give me a break. The devil is a liar. The devil never created anything fun. All he did was distort what God did and take credit for it. Heaven is the absence of evil and the presence of God. Can you even imagine a world where there is no evil? Can you imagine a world without mass shootings and abductions and war and famine and poverty can you imagine a world without jealousy envy anger backstabbing slander can you imagine a world without racism without fear without stress or anxiety a world without disease or death can you imagine it how awesome would that world be how awesome would that world be Heaven is boring? Please. Here's what the Bible says heaven will be like. We will know one another, love, and be loved. And that knowing one another thing is, it's so easy to just gloss over it like, oh, you know, I'll know your name and you'll know my name, Christine, Paolo. No. That's not what it means. I think it means something deeper. And we only get a, we only get little pictures of it, little small pictures of it. Like, um, I know this because I went to all the prenatal classes about how when a mother, Happy Mother's Day, when a mother has a child and their body is flooded with hormones and they bond with this person that they've given birth to or fathers like me when I held this stranger in my hand and all of a sudden I was flooded with something that I didn't quite understand and I knew from that moment that I would give my life for this person that that deep strong powerful intimacy that that is devoid of of jealousy and strife and anger and all that, just wipe it all away and have the purity of love. We will know one another and love and be loved. I think that it is something so glorious, something perhaps to look forward to. Heaven will be a place of unimaginable beauty. In heaven you will see Jesus face to face, the word through whom the earth was created, the author and finisher of our faith. 
You have new and perfect bodies. No disease, no dying, no death. Heaven is the absence of everything bad and painful and evil. It is the presence of everything good and holy and glorious. This is what scripture tells us heaven will be like. In a doxology in Ephesians, Paul says that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. There is nothing that we can dream up or imagine that can compare to heaven. And as humans, we are incredibly imaginative, aren't we? We can imagine a lot. And yet, whatever you can imagine, heaven is better. Another misconception we have about heaven has more to do with the here and now. The misconception that we have about heaven is that this world is our home. And here's the thing. As humans, we're not very good at keeping our future in sight. It's hard for us to keep our sights on something other than the present moments we exist in because we've kind of evolved in that way. We're very consumed with making sure that our present is fine. It's, it's that survival instinct in, instinct in us. And the struggles and the triumphs of our here and now can obscure the amazing future that is ahead of us. About 10 years ago, I was sitting with a bunch of teenage boys and they reminded me of what I was like in high school. I was a little bit nerdy. I was a little bit socially awkward. And I didn't really fit into any of the social groups that we had at our school. And through my conversation with these young men, I started to realize that they were wrestling with the same things I was wrestling with. They, like me, they didn't fit in. Like me, they were having issues fitting in socially in their social structures. Um, some of them were being bullied. And so, in an attempt to encourage them, I told them that the things that they were getting made fun of were the things that would make them awesome as adults. Now, if you live long enough, you know this to be true. If you get teased for being a nerd, you're probably going to be some kind of tech entrepreneur, aren't you? Or some kind of thinker. I mean, that intellect is forged in the fires of being teased and poked. <laughs> if you're in the band and you're teased for being in the band... Good, you're going to be a rock star. If, if, you're a, if you're a lady and you're teased for being too tall and lanky or having sharp facial features, you're probably going to be a model. But if you're in high school and some older guy who's trying to be relatable starts sharing these things with you, it's just so easy to tune them out and be quiet. And I saw it in the faces of these teenage boys. Like, stop telling me about some imaginary future while I'm, while I'm living through crap right now. I don't want to hear about it. It's so easy to live our lives on this earth like these teenage boys, isn't it? It's so easy to live as if the present world that we live in is the only one that we will know. But if you understand, as we said earlier, that you are eternal beings, then you understand that the place you spend a fraction of your life is not your real home. The place 
where you spend your 70 or 80 years is not your eternal home. Where you will spend your eternal life is your true home. Our true home is where we get to spend our eternity. Philippians 3. There is far more to life for us. We're citizens of high heaven. We're waiting for the arrival of the Savior, the Master, Jesus Christ, who will transform our earthly bodies into glorious bodies like his own. He'll make us beautiful and whole with the same powerful skill by which he is putting everything as it should be under and around him. Amen. The third misconception we have about heaven is that most people are going to heaven anyway. If we were to ask people that were not here, just go through our neighborhoods and poll people and ask people, what, what, what does heaven mean to you? What do you think heaven is? Um, I think that we would arrive at a kind of consensus of people saying heaven is a place where people who have led good lives go to receive an eternal reward. Basically, if you are good in this life, heaven is your reward in the afterlife. The problem with this thinking is that we all think we're good. Don't we? I've never met anyone who thinks they're a bad person. We all think we're good. But in truth, when we say that we're good, what we're really saying is that we had good intentions. When we say we're good, what we're really saying is we had good intentions. But there is a difference between having good intentions and being good. We have to be honest about this, people. We have to keep it all the way 100. Our intentions and our actions do not always line up. <laughs> Think about it. Are you batting like 50% where your, is your batting average like 50% where your intentions and your actions are concerned? Our intentions do not line up with our actions all the time. We do the bad things we don't want to do. And the good things we know we should do, we have a tendency not to do them. Or we don't get around to doing them anyway. We're completely messed up. This is why God's requirement for us is not that we are good before we receive salvation. God's requirement for us is to have faith. The gift is free, and all we have to do is take a leap of faith towards it. We have to have faith in the fact that what he accomplishes through Jesus on the cross bridges the gap between our good intentions and our actions. You see, heaven is not a place for people that think they have been good. The gap between our intentions and our actions shows that we're not really as good as we think we are. Heaven is for people that have been forgiven. Heaven is for people that are not trying to earn it, but rather for people that leap, leap by faith towards Christ's grace, mercy, and love.
In Paul's thesis in Romans, he writes this. Since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, Paul's keeping it a hundred here. That difference between your actions, your intentions and your actions, that falling short is called sin. The word used for sin in the Bible is not bad people or bad things. It's falling short. You start out with good intentions, but your actions don't line up with it. That gap between it is sin. And we're always compiling it. We've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners. And we prove that we're utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us. God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself. A pure gift. He got us out of the mess we were in and restored us to where he always wanted, it, wanted us to be. And he did it by means of Jesus Christ. God sacrificed Jesus on the altar of the world to clear that world of sin. Having faith in him sets us in the clear. God decided on this course of action in full view of the public to set the world in the clear with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus, finally taking care of the sins he had so patiently endured. This is not only clear, this is not only clear, but it is now. This is current history. God sets things right. He also makes it possible for us to live in his rightness. So what? The purpose of this message and the purpose of last week's message on hell, which, by the way, I watched the stream and I was like, I saw Kevin say, today I'm going to talk about hell. And I was like, good luck, buddy. You go for it. These two messages, I think, are like brother and sister messages. But we're not trying to scare you into faith. If that's happening, we're missing the mark. You see, every, everything about this time that we spend together, every word that is spoken from this place, every dollar that is spent at Greenville Baptist is for one purpose and one purpose only. It is to invite you into a life-transforming walk with Jesus. We want you to know Jesus. We want you to know the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of his love. We want you to be mesmerized by his grace and captivated by his mercy. We want your life to explode with joy. We want to introduce you to a life that is not lived on your terms, but on God's terms, because God wants so much more for you than you want for yourself. You see, when you give your life over to God, you start to realize something you start to realize that you do not have to die to experience heaven. As Christ works in in your life, you find that he starts to change and transform things that are broken and flawed about your life, and then he goes further. He starts to work in the people around you. You see, as humans, we're we're great at breaking things. We are. And yet, in Christ, you find that the broken world that you create for yourself is replaced by something completely different, if you allow Christ to do it. You can't do it on your own, but if you allow Christ to do it, he can replace that broken world that you've been creating for yourself all along.
I don't know if you know this, but the church is exploding in places around the world that we would consider to be poor. Now, cynical people would say that religion is an opiate that poor people use to escape their circumstances. But I think they misunderstand something fundamental about walking with God. A life in Christ is not a mental escape similar to the escape that people who abuse drugs are seeking. A life in Christ is not just an opiate. It is so much more. A life in Christ is a joyful life. It's not escapism. A life in Christ is a life that can walk through the challenges of this life in this world with grace and resilience. You know, Paul writes something in 2 Corinthians that is just so authoritative on this. Let's read it together. It says, if you only look at us, you might as well miss the brightness. We carry this, pre- this precious message around in unadorned clay pots of our ordinary lives. That's to prevent anyone from confusing God's incomparable power with us. As it is, there's not much chance of that. You know for yourselves that we're not much to look at. We've been surrounded and battered by troubles, but we're not demoralized. We're not sure what to do, but we know that God knows what to do. We've been spiritually terrorized, but God hasn't left our side. We've been thrown down, but we haven't been broken. What they did to Jesus, they do to us. Trial and torture, mockery and murder. What Jesus did among them, he does in us. He lives. Our lives are a constant risk for Jesus' sake, which makes Jesus' life all the more evident in us. While we're going through the worst, you're getting in on the best. Most of us don't live lives as challenging as Paul, do we? Let's be real here. Most of us don't live lives as challenging as Paul does. The circumstances that he writes about being battered, spiritually terrorized, thrown down, trial, mockery, torture, murder. These are circumstances that most of us would describe as being some kind of hell, wouldn't we? As living through some kind of hell. But something interesting is revealed in this passage. The writer of this passage is a person that doesn't need to die to find heaven. In the face of what we would call heaven, in the face of what we would call hell on earth, this writer has found the very thing that I've been trying to say all along, and I've been praying that we would all find. This writer has found heaven on earth. This heaven is a way to face everything that life throws at us and just soar above it all. If you've ever stepped towards Christ in faith, I would like to make this, if you've never stepped towards Christ in faith, I would like to make this invitation clear and plain. If you've held back from walking with Christ in faith, hear me, take the leap. Take the leap. Don't hold back. I cannot fully describe what you will find on the other side of your leap. The only way to find out what it is like is to take the leap for yourself. You can let go of trying to control your life. You can let go of trying to be good. 
the gap between your intentions and your actions proves that you're failing to be good intrinsically. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to come to faith. The, the, the faith walk with Christ is not a walk of white-knuckling it and trying to be good on your own. No. It is God creating in you something that you could not have created yourself. Leap towards God and let God's goodness become your own. Our glorious hope is heaven. Our glorious hope is heaven. But not just in the afterlife. Right here and now, we can step into God's best for us, knowing that it is only a foreshadowing of something more glorious than we could ever ask or imagine. Amen. God, I pray that you just plant these words deep inside of us in a place that we will not forget. I pray that your spirit would draw us to that place where we let go of trying to work things out on our own and trust you to do in us what we cannot do in ourselves. God, I struggle with this every single day. I struggle with trying to be a good person instead of allowing your goodness to become mine. I struggle every single day trying to, trying to prove that I can live this life without you, without your grace and your mercy. And yet, God, I think that in the end what you've been trying to show us all along is that when we return to reflecting your goodness back to you, we find a life that we could have never found without you. And so right here in this moment, I pray that we will respond to the call of your spirit, to the pull of your spirit. Amen.